0: C4 and Part One of Activating Your Life on Mission by Mike Jar. I think it'd be maybe good to add a little bit to the backdrop, which is you know I'll I'll go back to high school where I was an agnostic, going through a period of doubting and questioning, and how do I know that this is actually true? Um, How do I know that I'm I'm any different than the kid who grew up in India? and he believes what he believes because his parents told him. I don't want to believe what I believe because my parents told me. And so I went through this period of questioning and doubt and asking very difficult questions about faith and life and purpose. And there was actually a man who would not leave me alone, who he was actually the first person in the church world that would say, I don't know, to the questions that I was asking him. And I could tell most people in the church world wanted me to believe, and so I could tell they were making things up when they didn't have answers because they wanted me to believe, but this guy was the first one that would say, I don't know. That's a good question, and it was his genuineness and authenticity that when he would take me back to some of the answers he had discovered. I knew that he wasn't making things up because he would tell me when he didn't know. And all of that was a part of what led me back to faith over the course of a summer, late night appetizers at an Applebee's. That's when I came back to faith. It was, it was the half price, boneless wings, and you know the quesadilla that brought me back. And then I was working with youth in Philly, And felt that really I think the best way to impact youth was to impact families And so I started um, I was at a conference and connected with some people that had just tried to get this church plant off the ground It was a small group of people meeting in an EMS building and a middle school And they needed somebody to kind of lead them And as I was talking about what I'm doing and some of my backstory, they said, we'd love for you to come out and hang out with us. So I did, and we talked, connected, felt a really good bond there. And they asked me to come out and kind of lead what they were doing. Well, that church grew very quickly, rapidly, numerically from about 30, 40 people to about 850. In about a four-year period, we ended up building this larger facility, gymnasium, hiking trails were, you know, in the process of a 1500 seat building campaign, all that kind of stuff. So rapid numerical growth. However, pretty much everyone I talked to in the church would say that they came from another church. And so we weren't really reaching lost people. And then as, as I was talking to the people that were coming from other churches and they were coming because we were Starbucks and the churches in the area were Tom's Coffee Shop and we had better goods and services, better band, better facilities, better programs, that sort of thing. And so they came to us because we were kind of the better show in town. But I felt like, are we actually reaching lost people? The, the answer was no, we're not. And are we actually making disciples or people's lives that much different than the people around them? And again, to that, I'd have to say not really. And at that time, I had been introduced to some people that were doing things all over the U.S. and all over the globe, house churches in the Rocky Mountains and ministry in Berlin and Africa and the stories that they shared, I kind of got jealous of their stories. What they did wasn't as big. It was small, it was local, it was skid row, it was, you know, in the back alleys. But the stories that they shared just just captured my imagination. It almost, it kind of took me back to Applebee's, really, if I'm honest with you. It took me back to those early moments of discovering Jesus in community with a group of people that were authentic and that shared their life with me. And so I got captured by these stories and this group of guys took me out. I was supposed to speak at a national leadership conference in San Diego and it was a week before my wife and I got married. And these guys said, we want to take you out. You're getting married next week. We just want to celebrate you. And I said, okay, great. So they took me to this pub in San Diego called the Blind Lady Ale House. And so I want you to picture about 15 missionaries, church planters, sitting around this crowded bar top tables that were pushed together on a Friday night in a crowded pub in San Diego. And as we're sitting around this group of high top tables pushed together, one of the guys said, I think with Mike getting married, next week we need to take turns and we just need to share one piece of advice for mike for his future marriage and so people ordered some apps and some drinks and all the stuff's coming and one by one the guys started going around and just sharing here's what i've learned here's here's one thing if i could pass one thing on to you it would be this And they took turns going around a table. Now, it wasn't weird or cheesy or preachy. It was just genuine. And I felt like I was being loved by uncles or older brothers or people that really cared for me. And then after a little bit of that, one of the guys said, I think, you know, we should also tell Mike that things aren't always good. And I think we need to take turns and share just the biggest stupid mistakes that we've made in our marriages. And so these guys started going around the table one by one, and they started saying, Whatever you do, never say this. Whatever you do, never do this, right? And they started confessing, but some of it got really raw and vulnerable, where guys were sharing some of the biggest mistakes that they had made with tears at the table and saying, Thank God for grace. My wife forgave me. We're still together. Thank God for grace. And I'm hearing these stories and feeling bonded. And I thought, man, these guys really, really care about me. Some of them I just met, but they've gotten so open and vulnerable and and confessed right here at a table in in the middle of this pub in San Diego. So a little bit later, one of the guys said, I, you know, I, I really feel like the Holy Spirit has put it on my heart to buy a round of beers for the table next to us. And I'm like, what? What? So the guy bought around for the table next to us. And the guys at the table next to us leaned over and said, who are you guys? We hear you like laughing. We hear you crying. You bought our drinks. And the guy said, we're a group of missionaries and guys that are starting churches. And the guy goes, no, that's BS. Who are you really? Said, no, it's really who we are. And and he said, why don't you join us? And the guys said, I'm an atheist. And he said, well, we don't care, join us anyway. And so this four top table scooted their table onto our table and they were treated like insiders. And so we had these four newbies at the table with us who didn't believe in God. They're talking about why they don't believe in God. The guys at the table are talking about why we do what we do. They're teasing us, we're teasing them, we're sharing appetizers, we're laughing, we're... Is they were treated like insiders. And then, with these new guys at the table, one of the guys at my table, a Marine, stands up, Irish Marine, stands up, and he said, I think with Mike getting married next week, I would like to pray a prayer blessing over him for his future marriage. And then he looked at these atheist guys and he said, I, I hope you don't mind. I know that might be a little weird for you, but. You know, we'd just like to bless our friend here because he's getting married next week. And the one atheist guy said, Well, that sounds like a really meaningful idea. And so this this Marine is standing up with his pint of stout and he prays this Celtic blessing over me in the middle of this crowded pub with believers and non believers and church planters and missionaries all sitting there together. And I sat back in my seat and I thought, I have never felt so loved by a group of Christians in my life. These guys bought my food, bought my drinks. They shared advice with me. They confessed their biggest mistakes to me. They prayed for me. The Lord added to our number other people that had come into the circle. And then it's, you ever have those moments in your In your life or in your faith journey, where it 's like light bulbs, like the Holy Spirit just reveals something to you that's you can 't unsee it's just such a powerful moment, and in that moment for me, it was the book of Acts just lit up in my in my head, and I thought, breaking a bread, check prayer check there was not a needy person among them people people 's tabs were being paid. The Lord was adding to their number. They were sharing stories around the table. And I thought, this looks more to me like what I see of the church in Acts than what I'm currently doing with this project that we have to build a 1,500-seat facility and try to get as many people as we can on one day a week for one hour a week. This feels like what Jesus experienced with the disciples. And it just messed me up. It was, it was that experience that I then went off on our honeymoon after we got married and we're in Bermuda and I told my wife the story and I said, I think God wants us to do blind lady Alehouse house church or something. That was the name of the pub. I think God wants us to do something like that. And she agreed with me. And so we started on this journey of just gathering some people in our home, in our basement, gathering some people over chicken wings at a local sports bar, just trying to figure out what does it look like to share our lives with other people, to be vulnerable, to love those around us, to include people that felt that they were far off and outsiders and bring them in around the table. And so it's been kind of a ride over the past 12 years. NRC is the name of our church. It's actually a collection of missionaries who see, as Ian said, this place is a mission field. And so people go, the, the brewery that I started as a mission field, the cosmetology school that I opened up as a mission field. My neighborhood is a mission field. The school where I teach at is a mission field. And as a result of mission, you see people come to faith. And when people come to faith, you end up with a community. You end up with a community that's a church, right? So I think in many ways, we think that we go out and start churches and then make disciples. But I think really the pattern is that you make disciples and then you end up with a church. You start as missionaries. And the orders in scripture, it's that God is a missionary God. Jesus came, moved into the neighborhood, dwelt among us, lived among us, incarnated, right? So Jesus is the ultimate missionary who came and moved here among us and lived among us, flesh and blood, right here in the neighborhood, wearing our clothes, eating our food, walking our streets, working as a carpenter, living life amongst the people. Jesus moved here as the ultimate missionary and lived among us. And then he said, as the father sent me, I send you. And so you start with Jesus and Jesus sends us out on mission and then mission results in disciples being made and disciples being made is a church or a collection of churches or a larger movement of what God's up to. And so I think many times we just have the order backwards. We start with church and church is where we go to learn about Jesus. And then those super dedicated, like Navy seals of Christianity, they're the ones that go out on mission. But I think the order actually in scripture is you start with Jesus, who's the alpha and the omega the, he, he's the firstborn of all creation, right? He's, he, he is the starting point. You start with Jesus. Jesus sends us on mission as the Father sent me, so I send you. Go and make disciples. As Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I mean, we're all sent. There's no such thing as, as a follower of Jesus that isn't sent as a missionary disciple maker. So you start with Jesus and you go, we're all sent. You're a missionary in your neighborhood, workplace, wherever you're at, we're all sent. And then the result of that is, if you live as lights in the world, other people will experience the light of Christ as well. And when that happens, you say, what does it look like for us to live together, to love each other, to care for each other, to be a part of each other's stories, to meet each other's needs? And and then you end up with churches or a whole movement or whatever. So NRC is what we do locally in the, in the Harrisburg area. And then we ended up, the guy who led me back to faith at Applebee's ended up accidentally planting a church out of us in Philly, where I came from. So we ended up with a church plant there and then he planted again in Delaware. And then we planted again, a multi-ethnic bilingual movement is a part of what we're doing in central pa migrant workers all that kind of stuff which is really cool so it's kind of this larger ring that's gone out as people own living as missionary disciple makers and then creo collective is you know what a number of us ian included would consider themselves a part of this larger movement of missionaries that Are both in the U.S. and overseas. And I direct Creo. There's a team of us that work together, probably close to 300 people that are, see themselves as missionaries wherever they're at. So that's a little bit of background. Is that helpful? Mm -hmm. And then I think the first thing that I'd like to do, because I think it's really easy to get into strategy and try to talk about what are we going to do and how are we going to change the world, but honestly, I'm terrified of my own ego. I'm terrified of my own pride. I'm terrified of my own potential to use people instead of love people. I'm terrified of how quickly I get seduced by let's change the world and a big vision and a huge dream and let's do something enormous, right? I'm I'm afraid of that because I know how how broken I am, right? And I think we have to be aware of that. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. John the Baptist talked about that he must increase, I must decrease, and I can't even hold his sandals. And I I think we need to be on this trajectory of. Of lowering ourselves, not elevating ourselves. We've got to constantly look at Jesus and how amazing he is. We need to remember what our motivation is. Otherwise, we can run, run out with this desire to change the world, make a difference, make a splash, but we actually end up producing something that isn't good news, that's actually heavy weight. Does that make sense? So I think the, the starting point has to be the good news. I just did a funeral, really, really great guy, this guy, Brian, huge Eagles fan too. You know he's a good guy, great, great guy. And he found out that he was going, he had about 48 hours to live. He had a, he had an issue with his, with his heart and he found out that he only had about 48 hours to live. And so he went into the hospital and I was called in and went in to visit him and we would constantly talk about Philadelphia sports and stuff like that together. But he was a man that was really passionate about Jesus and we would talk for hours about Jesus together. And when I went in and, and the waiting room is just packed because all the family's there to kind of say their goodbyes and take take turns one by one going in and seeing him. And so I, I go into the room and I was just overcome with emotion and looked at him and just said, man, Brian, it has been a good ride. It's been a good ride. And he said to me, Mike, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to meet Jesus. I'm ready. And, and then he said, but can you tell me the good news again? could you tell me again the good news? I'm like, yeah. And I'm sharing it with him and and he says this to me. He said, Mike, I just want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. And I said to him, I said, Brian, well done, good and faithful servant does not mean well done, you were good and then you were faithful it's not what it means. The good actually modifies the faithful, sort of like I'm good and tired. The idea is, well done, you trusted me. Well done, you were full of faith in me. Well done, you believed me. Good job trusting that I got the job done. And I think that so many of us are motivated by this sense of I need to achieve or work my way to God or impress God or somehow get myself in the favor with the one who has already declared me in his good graces as a gift. And I could just see the weight shed off of him and I said, Brian, you're going to hear it because you trust your dad. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You will never pay for your sins because somebody else did. Nothing can separate you from the love of your Father. If God is for you, who can be against you? And I could just see, ah, all that weight come off. Last week, last Friday, I ended up doing, I had to... I had to go to court to testify in a murder trial. One of the guys who lived in my neighborhood became a part of our community and he was coming around my table, became a very good friend. Jackie and I would sit out on the back patio and eat peanuts until two o'clock in the morning talking about the mysteries of the kingdom and life and relationships and all that kind of stuff. And this man who lived in my neighborhood was an incredibly kind person. He was a traveling nurse. He would come to my home and he would fix my mower if it wasn't working. When I was on vacation, he would mow my grass and not tell me and I would come home Completely surprised, he he would drop up, off gifts like just to show love to me. He was a good friend, taught me how to drive a stick shift. I still not good at it, right? A great guy. He ended up feeling motivated as a missionary to share good news with the people around him. And one of the guys that he was motivated to share good news to was a guy that was putting some solar panels on his roof. And so he ended up befriending the guy that was putting solar panels on his roof. And then the guy that was putting solar panels on his roof ended up hanging out around a bunch of us. And so the solar guy ends up coming to faith in Jesus. And as the solar guy comes to faith in Jesus, he's about to get married and his fiance is coming into our home. She she puts her faith in Jesus as well. They asked me to do their wedding. I officiate their wedding. The best man's there. The best man at the wedding, he, he looks just like Bryce Harper, if you know who Bryce Harper is. Looks just like Bryce Harper. He was kind of like loud, life of the party kind of guy, energetic, best man. And he's, he's there at the wedding and right after I gave my, my wedding message, he said, that homily, that preaching, that sermon, whatever you gave, that was, that was great. That was great. Thank you for that. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. And then he starts off talking about this kind of mix of new age and Christianity and, you know, other religions. It was kind of this, this, Crockpot of random ideas that he was throwing out, and my wife is standing next to me, and my wife 's kind of a bit of a prophet, and sh- so she likes to she likes to make sure that we 're accurate and that the the truth is being told and it 's kind of driving her nuts that this guy 's saying all this stuff that is inaccurate that 's not correct, but she doesn 't say anything she 's just standing right next to me, and as this guy saying all this bizarre stuff. I just take it back and tell him another story about Jesus. And he's like, yes! Yeah, man! And he got really excited. And he, hey, why don't you come over here too? And he's inviting other people. Larry, Omar, Crystal. And he's pulling these other people into the mix. And the crowd's getting a little bit bigger. And then he says some other weird off-the-wall stuff again. And I, I could see it's driving her nuts again, right? <laughs> But she doesn't say anything. So stand standing right next to me. And so then I go off and tell another story that Jesus told, another parable that Jesus told. And he got really excited again. Oh, dude, that's it. Yes, yes. And then he's inviting more people. The crowd's getting bigger. Suddenly, we're like the sideshow at the wedding, right? There's like a growing crowd of people around us. The bride and groom are looking over like, what is happening over there? And it's because we're talking about Jesus and the kingdom and the crowd's getting bigger and people were getting excited. But he's saying all this kind of bizarre stuff. So he says it again, some some other strange things, and I just go back to Jesus again. I go back to Jesus again and he goes, you get me. (laughs) Right? And I'm like, I don't get you at all. I have no idea what you're talking about. But he was so excited about the things that I was sharing about Jesus over about a six-month period after that that man ended up coming to faith. And so the solar guy, his wife, the best man at the wedding, and then they end up starting a brewery church together. The guy who had come to faith, the solar guy and the best man and his wife and their families ended up forming something together. But it all started because of this guy on my street that was the traveling nurse. Well, the guy that was the traveling nurse ended up leaving his wife for another woman who was a nurse where he worked at and his marriage broke up and he was working as a nurse during COVID and kind of crazy hours and lots of stress, all that kind of stuff. And the new girl that he was dating, he ended up moving in with and they got a house together. And then he circled back and said, he wanted to meet up with me. So we met up and we had lunch one day, and we're sitting there talking and stuff. And he's sharing about his mistakes and his desire to connect with Jesus. And we're having this really great conversation and talking about how we wanted to meet up again. Well, the next time I heard about him was that he was arrested for murdering his girlfriend. And apparently, what had happened was that he and his girlfriend got in an argument. And he turned around and his girlfriend supposedly hit him with a chair and then took a piece of the chair and then he ran into the bedroom and he got a gun and he shot her and then he shot himself in the head and the bullet went up through his chin and out of his eyeball and through his forehead and he survived and then he was, he was taken to prison and the next time I met him was in jail. And he said to me, am I going to hell? And he said, I'm reading all these things in the Old Testament and I'm reading my Bible like crazy and I'm wondering if I'm going to hell. I have to tell you, for Brian, the guy who died, in his last words, he's like, tell me the good news again. For this man in prison, Who's saying, Am I going to hell? Is there hope for me? What we're talking about, the good news of the gospel, is the hope of the world for Brian and for Bill, this man that committed murder. And I was having a conversation with my sister and I said, This, you know, imagine if your son killed my son. Would you still love your son? She said, Yeah, I would. I said, but would your heart be broken? Yes, it would. Would you want somehow for all of that evil and wrong and brokenness to be undone and somehow again around the table would be your son and my son and that they would be reconciled and forgiven and brought back and that God's grace would prevail and that they would love each other again and that they would feast again at a table? Yes, absolutely I would love that. Now, I think we have to think about this. God is gracious. God is love. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. His will is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And our desire as we look out on a broken world, is that we should weep the way that Jesus weeps because we want to see those that are far off brought near. We want to see those that are hopeless experience hope. We want to see the captives set free. We want to see, see people find life and joy and goodness again in Jesus. And I think that this question of, you know, whatever you've done to the least of these, when, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When did we do that? He said, Jesus said, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Because every single one of us made in the image of the Father who loves us and likes us. And let me say this, Mikey, stand up. It's like saying to me, I, I like you, Mike, but I don't like Mikey. How am I going to respond if you said to me, Mike, I like you, but I don't like your son? You get what I'm saying? I'm going to go, oh no, that's not going to work. Whatever you've done to the least of these and you're, I don't think you're least, I think you're great, son. I love you. Have a seat. Have a seat whatever you've done to the least of, you, of these you've done to me, is the, is the cry of a father who's saying, I love all of my children. You cannot say that you love me and that you don't love Mikey. And so I say this, like, you love God. There's another passage in First John that says, we cannot say that we love God and we hate our brother. Who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? Right? It's like, anyone. You cannot say that you love God and you don't love your neighbor or your brother the way that you love the least of these. You love God as much as you love the person you love the least. Think about that. That's what he's saying. And so I think what that leads us to is what I'm not trying to do is guilt and shame. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. You are free. The guilt game is over. God's not keeping score. The scoreboard is unplugged. Your sins are as far as the east is to the west. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is this is an opportunity for us to change our minds. Are you following? It's to change our minds. It's to change our minds, which is repent. Metanoia, to change our minds, to think differently, to think again, okay? Repent, think again. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. Jesus has come not to condemn the world, but to save it. And I think that you and I have to have fresh eyes again to look at the world around us as people that we love not people that we're annoyed by not people that are the enemy our battle's not against flesh and blood there's an enemy who's a deceiver a liar a trickster those around us are not described by God as people that he hates God so loved the world not hated the world loved it loved it For the joy set before him he went to the cross. So when we look around at the at the world around us, it's an opportunity for us to change our minds and go, Do I so love each and every one of these people? The way that God has loved me. Does my heart break for him? When's the last time you had a good cry? When's the last time you couldn't go to sleep because you were thinking about these people that needed hope and good news and life and love and forgiveness? You know, the Bible describes us as lost. What do you want to happen if you're lost? You want to be found, right? Lost people need to be found. How does the Bible describe God? The one who seeks and saves the lost. That's what he does. He rips the couch apart. Tears the house apart for the lost coin. He goes and pursues the lost son. This is what he does is he seeks and saves the lost. He's very good at it. What what do you want to happen when you're blind? You want to see. What about when you're dead? You can't do anything for yourself, can you? While we were dead in in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it, defeated it, extinguished it. Wow. And so we get to go out and proclaim good news. The gospel is, is not about you accepting Jesus into your life, it's about the fact that Jesus has accepted you. You did not choose me, I chose you. We love him because he first loved us. I think we think it's about us and our good choice and all of that and God's like, no, I chose you, I love you. It starts with him. He's the initiator, he's the lover of our hearts and our souls. He is for you. It's amazing to think about that. He's wild about you. He's fond of you. He loves you. He desires community with you. Think about it this way the first thing that's true at the very beginning is, is our adoption. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Okay, I think we think the starting point is the foundation of the world, don't we? God is outside of time. He chose us before the foundation of the world. The first thing that's true about God is that He is not alone and He is not a narcissist. The first thing that's true about God is that God exists in relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father think about how profound this is. This isn't like Islam where you've got one God that's alone that creates beings that need to adore him because he has something missing in himself. We're talking about a God who already exists as relationships. Think about the ramifications of what this means when we say God is love. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. The spirit loves the son. There are these beautiful relationships that are self-giving, right? Which matches the character of God who came not to be served, but to serve. Who gave his life. Who's giving to us and loving us. Who came not to be at the top, but the bottom. I descended, I served, I wash your feet. The very nature of God is His humility and his love and his self-giving love and the father loves the son and the son loves the father and the spirit loves the son. And these relationships are perfect. And then God chose you and I to create us and then to bring us, adopt us, into this triune relationship so that we can enjoy a relationship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit, and that we get to be a part of this relational dance with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, and with each other for all of eternity. And in Jesus' cries and his prayer is that we would be one, that we would be full of love for each other. This is why at the very heart of it, it's love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor. Because at the essence of the whole thing is relationships. Because at the essence of God is relationships. Is this clicking? Isn't this beautiful? So the foundational thing, what the whole story starts with You were made in the image of God. He loves you and he likes you and he's adopted you and he's brought you into relationship in a Trinitarian love fest forever. And yet we live in this brokenness and darkness and blindness and the first thing that Adam and Eve were told at the very beginning is that they gotta do something Because they're separated from God. Are you tracking? Your dad doesn't love you. You're not good enough. If you do this, if you eat this, if you achieve this, then you'll be like God. The first lie that was told was that they weren't made in the image of their father. They weren't loved. They weren't already walking in communion with a God who was wild about them, that they had to do something in order to get there. The first lie is this separation. And they bought it, right? And Jesus has come to break down those walls that you are not separated from God, that you are loved by the Father, that he has bridged the gap, that those that were far off will be brought near That we would come around the table and feast and eat and laugh and enjoy the grace of a God who so desperately wants to commune with us, who loves us, who desires us. This has to be our motivation for Bill. This has to be our motivation for Brian. This has to be our motivation for our family members, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers that we're motivated by the God who is love, who has unplugged the scoreboard, who remembers our sins no more, with whom there is no condemnation, that's tossed your sin, your brokenness, your depravity down the black hole of his death. And he's declared you righteous, loved, free, innocent, forgiven, Holy. He looks at you with an actual smile. I think that many of us think that the first thing that's true about God is that he's a judge. When the first thing that's true about God is that God is Father Now, my kids do some stupid things sometimes. I do some stupid things sometimes. But the first thing that's true about me for my children is that I'm their dad. The second thing that's true is that sometimes I gotta make a judgment. Do you follow? Now, imagine if my kids primarily viewed me as judge. It'd be different, wouldn't it? But if my kids viewed me primarily as dad... Is there any fear that their dad's not going to love them? My kids don't live with that. They believe that I love them. And I'm not the best dad, but I know how to give good gifts to my children. You get what I'm saying? Now, at times I got to make judgments, but nothing can separate them from my love. Do you see why this is important that we start with a foundation of a father. Who loves us. I think we 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 must starting point grace, 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 grace. This is why we think that our sin separates us from God. Okay? And so we we feel like we we have to like make the right choices, or God won't love us. And in reality. Jesus became separated for us. He became the curse in our place on our behalf so that we would not be separated from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so you see this dance in Jesus, and I think this is really important. I want you to see a pattern. You see this dance in Jesus where every time people brought up morality, they'd say, I have never committed adultery. What would Jesus say? Do you know, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery or I've never murdered anyone like, like your friend, Bill, I've never done that. What did Jesus say? If you've ever called someone fool or hated someone in your heart, curse them under your breath when you're taking a trash out, right? You've committed murder. Jesus gives us this crisis of capacity, right? All these commands I've kept since my youth, and Jesus is is like, okay, go and sell everything that you have. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What is Jesus doing? He's telling us that we cannot achieve righteousness. Do you get the point? So the woman who's caught in adultery... And she's dragged out into the streets. And it's during a festival. Likely a lot of people were drinking too much. They knew, the Pharisees knew this would be a good time to catch someone who had too much to drink that ended up in the wrong hotel room, right? So they drag her out into the street to, to test Jesus in front of everyone. And he says this, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he says, Does no one condemn you? Neither do I. Now get this, now go and be perfect. Go and never sin again. You must be holy as I am holy. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus doing? He's leveling the playing field saying, nah, you know what? Circumcision counts for nothing. Nothing. All your righteous deeds are dirty rags. You cannot do it. I did it. I am your life. I am the freshwater well. I am your hope. Just trust me. If you believe in me, you'll never die. If you trust me, you're good. I am the resurrection and the life. I am your hope. There is no hope in you. There is no hope in your performance. You don't need to try to attain it. I've already done it. Now, rest The job is finished. It is finished. What is finished needs nothing else. You don't need to do anything. He has already done it. You are free. You are loved. You are secure. You are forgiven because I have done it. Now chill. Now chill. I got you. I got you. And if I'm for you, who can be against you? The gates of hell won't even prevail against you. Nothing can separate you from my love. Isn't that good news? That's the stuff I want my friends to know because my friends are broken just like I am. And the way that I love the least of them is symbolic of the way that I see them as people made in the image of God. I love Mike, but I don't love Mikey is a problem. And so at the core, at the foundation, we gotta look at the people around us as those that were made in the image of God, adopted before the foundations of the world, loved by the Father, who he desires that none of them would perish, but that they would all come to change their minds about what the Father is like and what the Son has done and what they are able to experience for all of eternity in perfect union with a God who loves them. That's our motivation. Right? I'll pause I'll pause there. Is a good pause. And then maybe drink some coffee or stand up and shake it out. Some Q&A even and then I want to go into some like what does this mean for us? For each of us. But I think you are the light of the world. each and every one of us. We get to do this. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's the craziest message in town. It's bonkers. It's, it's absolutely wild. The message that we share is absolute, absolutely wild. You are dead in your trespasses and sins and God has thrown you a party. Is that wild? You are broken, sinful, flawed, imperfect. The things you want to do, you don't do. The things you don't want to do, you do. Wretched person that you are, God has killed the fattened calf and brought a robe and a band. I mean, we got the coolest message in town. Do we not? it's a whole lot better than the scorekeeping that our world is used to. And if we don't go out with that motivation and that foundation, then we're going to go out inviting people to come into a place of burnout, stress, moralism, try harder, do more to achieve in the name of Jesus, which is not good news. We got to start with this. That's why I started with, I hope you don't mind me laying the foundation first. I feel like it's important. Thank you for listening to part one of Activating Your Life on Mission, given by Mike Jarrell. Part two is available on the website. If you have any questions, please contact us at NC4. Thanks and have a blessed day.